Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Elise Paradis, Assistant Professor at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. Elise introduces us to the work of John Mayer and the value of neo-institutional theory as an alternative to more functionalist and conflict-oriented perspectives. In particular, Elise demonstrates the importance of the concept of decoupling through her work on the gap between policy and practice in the operating room. Hi, Elise. Thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. So we are here today to talk about John Meyer. I'm wondering if you could just get us started by giving us a short introduction to who he is or, or what he's known for in academia. Sure. So John Meyer is a, an organizational sociologist who has been working at Stanford for decades now. His uh, initial work was done in the 60s and 70s, and he's um, still working today. He is known uh, in sociology of education in particular, but also in the sociology of uh, organizations as um, founder of neo-institutional theory. So it's one strand of macro-sociological theory that is competing with other more Marxist or more functionalist um, forms of macro-organizational theories. Do you get a sense that he's widely read in the larger discipline, or is he someone who's, who's better known within the area of studying organizations and education? He would be mostly known there. Uh, his career started in education, and they've applied their research to other forms of uh, organizational life, but mostly uh, in educational literature. Now, I know that you've published in a few different areas and on, on some topics that are not always directly related to each other, but a lot of your work is in health professions and education, is he this kind of important figure that lots of people know in that area, or is it still a, a very specific subset of the researchers? He's not really well known yet. <laughs> um, I've just started bringing him uh, back into my work. There is interest, though, because there is a um, growing sense that the functionalist or conflict theories that are dominant in the field do not always tell the full story of what's happening in healthcare and the professions. And so people are starting to turn to different kinds of theories of the more phenomenological sense. And in uh, the case of John Meyer, it's a real interest in culture at the global level as motivators for human behavior. So obviously that has a major appeal for some communities uh, within that subfield. How did you first encounter or become aware of, of John Meyer's ideas? I was um, in undergrad, actually. I did my um, undergrad in the history of science and technology, and I was interested in doing research on education for my um, graduate school. And I started reading broadly about the intersection of education, science, and sociology, and I found the work of John Meyer in one book edited only by Gilly Drory. Um, who was uh, one of John's students. And in it, there were a bunch of papers that explored the issue of gender science um, and the global culture. And I was really hooked from that moment on. It really directly spoke to me in my experience as someone who, has taught, who had taught in uh, Haiti just before I read this work uh, about the, the power and influence of global norms on things that are done at the local level in developing countries. So that's what I thought I would do for my PhD. 
So one of the themes that, that I've noticed as I talk to people about their experience first reading a theorist had influence on them is that it's not always easy when you first encounter it. Sometimes the writing is difficult. Sometimes the ideas are just too complex. Were his ideas initially accessible to you or, or would you characterize him as one of those theorists that has this kind of dense style of writing that you have to puzzle through and, and work out? <laughs> that, that, that's funny. I'm a French speaker. And so I started reading in French. So our, our, I think French people's tolerance for obscure and difficult writing is higher than than average because we're socialized through it, you know. Yeah. But um, I think that John Meyer is a very clear writer, a very compelling writer. You, I mean, I know him very well now, but I can hear him speaking uh, when I read his work. And I therefore think it's fairly accessible. Um, some people struggle because it's a highly conceptual model and the, it's big theory to some level, you know, the concept of an institution, for instance, is not, uh, very easily accessible. Um, but otherwise I think that the empirical cases that neo-institutionalists tend to choose make the theory very appealing and they challenge our way of thinking about the world. It's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of the theorists I was referring to were the French theorists that the, the American student encounters for the first time and is not used to that style of writing. So you traveling the opposite way kind of set you up for those type of ideas. Oh, absolutely. I never, for instance, struggled with Bourdieu because, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're socialized into this kind of writing really early in the French system. So Yes, uh, much less obscure and, and, and convoluted writing than uh, Bourdieu. So uh, he's very American in that sense. So so when you encountered the ideas of John Meyer, you, you found a chapter in the edited book. Did you immediately seek out more of his work or was it kind of a bit of a gap where you suddenly remembered, you know, later on, oh, OK, there was this idea that might be useful or was it initially there's something here that I need to know more about? Actually, I used uh, Meyer's framework to uh, apply for graduate school at Stanford. So I had, at that point, I think, digested enough of the model that they thought I could do studies with them. So I, I did go to Stanford at that point to do my PhD, and John uh, was on my committee. Was there a particular idea of his that really drew you in and that, that continued to influence you? You were already mentioning this model that you started to work through. But is there a particular idea that you could elaborate on? Yes, absolutely. So the idea would be the idea of decoupling. And I've written a short uh, article on decoupling for the journal Medical Education uh, that is called um, When I Say Decoupling. And I really liked this idea because uh, the way I understood it initially in undergrad, and I uh, obviously my understanding evolved a bit since, but it's this gap between what people say they do and what people do, right? And what people say they do is often influenced by global culture and by what, but by what we have internalized as the right things to think, the right things to say, the right way to legitimate what we're doing. And in contrast with what we do, which is more reflective of deep-seated uh, beliefs and the constraints of the work we're trying to do. So there is this gap that's really useful to study sociologically between uh, what is said or policies and what is done, so the practices. Um, 
in the field. And historically, most of new institutional theory focused on that gap between policy and practice. And as, uh, as Bromley and Powell have discussed, the, the shift has then been towards more of the gap between practices and what we expect uh, them to do. So what is called the policy outcome uh, decoupling. So how has that idea influenced your own work or how have you explored this idea of decoupling? So, as I said, initially, I thought that's what I would be studying, the gap between uh, policy around gender and science and the practices of gendered science. Uh, unfortunately, my that a PhD proposal didn't get funded, so I had to shelve this idea. But most recently, what I've been doing is a study of the surgical safety checklist, which is one of the most uh, highly regarded patient safety interventions of the 21st century. And um, we did this study comparing the policy around the surgical safety checklist with its practice in the operating room in one specific uh, study hospital. So we observed 55 surgeries and compared usage of the checklist with its documented purpose and uh, principles. So that work has helped us uncover what we call um, underlying principles that reflect this cultural belief in the checklist, but that cannot really be borne out in practice because they clash with the operational realities of surgical care, uh, at least at our study site. I'm always interested in how you conceptualize what we what we do with theories. Mm -hmm. Is it that you take these ideas that John Meyer is writing about and you bring them to different sites and you explore them at a different scale than he was? Or, or what? how do you conceptualize your relationship between the research and that theory that guided you? Absolutely. So there's, I've written something else about theory uh, usage. It's not in print yet, but I think that in, in this case, what is what really was the initial use of theory is the conceptualization of the research question. So we had data that suggested that the use of the surgical safety checklist in Ontario, where we did the study, was not associated with the expected lowering in adverse surgical outcomes, so mortality and morbidity. So what we were asking is, with, thinking with John Meyer, right? Is it the policy that's the problem? Do we have a bad checklist, say? Or is it the practice that's the problem? Is it that people are not doing what is intended to be done with the policy? So it's a theoretical framework that helps us focus our gaze on specific aspects of the social world so that we can compare then the, the policy and the practice and try to say something about this decoupling between policy practices and outcomes, right? And because John Meyer's framework is very much about the, the normative space, we end up uh, identifying some of the normative underpinnings of the policy right, um, as a core contribution to, to this space of research. It's really interesting how you're explaining this, this gap in the field that you were finding between the policy and what was actually happening in the operating room with the surgical checklist. Do you have any stories from the field that could, could show the way you're using John Meyer's idea of decoupling or just kind of uh, explain that theory a bit more? Yes, absolutely. So we found in our study of the surgical safety checklist that one of the core mechanisms that the authors of the checklist posited for 
greater um, improved outcomes in, in surgery through the use of the checklist was its power to make clinicians accountable, right? So we identified this broad principle of accountability as fundamental to healthcare thinking, but uh, concretized in the checklist itself. And so in theory, then you have the policy aspect of it says that once you you coerce clinicians into re, uh, reporting compliance with the checklist, you will have increased conduct or practice of the checklist, and therefore you'll get better outcomes, right? So greater accountability leads to be- better healthcare. What we found at our study site, for example, that contrasted with this is that the accountability form was uh, not making sure that every single item was checked, but instead provided these really uh, obscure yes-no boxes that the nurse, so one of the least powerful people on the team, had to check uh, yes or no, this section of the checklist has been done. And so what ended up happening is there was uh, these pressures on nurses to always report that the checklist had been done. Otherwise, they were the ones being disciplined, right? So if the, the, yeah, so if the mechanism had worked properly, you would have had accountability leading to the checklist being done. And what instead was happening was accountability pressures made for a, a decoupled relationship between the checklist being done and it's being input properly in, in, in the compliance form. And therefore, we found at the hospital level where we were, above 99% compliance rate as per those compliance forms. And yet in our 55 cases, we found zero occurrences of the checklist itself being done. Right. So the power of this belief in accountability was not matched with the operational realities of surgical practice. So and then just to repeat that. So of the 55 cases, there were zero times was actually followed as the policy dictated. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that, yeah. Leads, that leads to a lot of confidence. <laughs> Oh, uh, it, it was shocking. You know, the, when we first realized the, this gap between reported compliance and actual compliance, we were very much distraught, right? And then the, the um, functionalist model, models would say, well, these people are not doing their job, right? And you would blame the individual for not taking part in the whole. And what we say instead is that these broad cultural beliefs obscure the fact that what is happening is not compliance. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. As you've entered this world of using John Meyer's ideas again, have you seen other theorists that he works particularly well with? Or is it that you left John Meyer as you studied different topics and then now John Meyer works for this type of project? Or is there, are there these conversations that's happening between these theorists that have inspired you or influenced you? So in terms of my personal journey, I first learned about John Meyer and then also in, during my PhD learned about Pierre Bourdieu. And my work uh, 
on women in boxing was really uh, a Bourdieuian problem, right? It was about bodily capital and a changing field around women who were trying to get access to martial arts. So for a while, I, I flirted with Bourdieu, and I have also done some other work around interdisciplinary uh, collaboration using Bourdieu. I came back to John Meyer in my conversation with my colleague when we were starting to think about studying the surgical safety checklist because it made a lot of sense uh, as a framing device, as I have explained. Um, some of my students in that space, one of them who's a paramedic, has been integrating uh, Pierre Bourdieu, neo-institutional theory, and some of the sociology of the professions literature, so Freidson, uh, in her study of paramedicine as profession in, in search for legitimation. So that connection between uh, neo-institutional theory and Bourdieu is one that uh, she's not the first one to do. It's uh, Emir Bayer and Johnson did something, uh, wrote an article that's really useful in 2009, integrating uh, neo-institutional theory and Pierre Bourdieu. And I see this still as a really fruitful avenue for understanding field-level dynamics, habitus, socialization, and culture. Some people have done Bourdieu and the professions, but I think the, that it's not yet been fully convincing because Bourdieu himself was not really verbal on the professions. He said very, very little specifically about the professions outside of academia and some specific case studies. But there, there, there is some theoretical development yet, I think, to be done in, in those spaces for sure. One of the things I like to ask is a way to wrap up the conversation and, re and reflect on some of the ideas that you've discussed is what would you say reflecting on your own experience both on the on the research projects that you've engaged with uh, your time teaching your time mentoring graduate students using these ideas what would you say are the main advantages or selling points of engaging with, with the work of John Meyer because like as you said he's this figure that exists in sociology has published a great deal but he, he still remains used by some, but not known by all. Um, so, so what would you tell the larger discipline or, or just undergrads or grads thinking about their reading list and where they're going to go about why they should start reading someone like John Meyer? Um, because it is a really useful third pillar in our theoretical apparatus, right? So we have conflict theories that we all read. We all read Marx. We have uh, functionalist theories. And then we have this, this potential for a, a global or, or macro level phenomenological theory where we care about how people make meaning, how our organizations make meaning, how... Uh, individuals as members of social groups and organizations and uh, societies and communities and countries are socialized in specific uh, ways that are that extend beyond uh, the search for power or the need to continue for a society to function the way it does, right? So it's a um, phenomenological theories at the individual level are very popular in the field, but they haven't really uh, been as popular, I would say, in terms of the, the more macro levels of, of analysis. And in particular, what I've, what I've always been fascinated with and what I think is a really fruitful approach that maps well onto what we've been doing with our surgical safety work is these connections between the macro, so, you know, world alliances and the international non-governmental organizations, or, such as uh, and the patient safety organizations and all of these, and people on their ground. So the macro to micro connection is certainly uh, worth 
investigating. It's a core sociological problem. And the way back also is, right? So the micro to macro, how do individuals come to shape global cultures? So these kinds of mechanisms um, apply not only in education, not only in specific uh, organizational contexts, but everywhere, right? And I think that my work recently has been to bring some of this thinking to uh, healthcare and the health professions. And I hope that others are inspired to do this kind of work in other uh, areas of sociology. That's a, that's a perfect place to end. So thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme song, undergraduate sociologists Alicia Rios and Simone Graham for their help with the project. And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.